When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. listening to Ohio versus the world an American history podcast subscribe and follow the show on iTunes Stitcher Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook or at our website Ohio the the world podcast.com Ohio versus the world is part of the evergreen podcast network go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes now here's your host Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's we kick off the second half of season six of Ohio versus the World. This is episode seven, Ohio versus Incarceration. Don't forget, we're part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'd like to let people know Dino Tripodis and our friends at Whiskey Business Podcast. They've joined the Evergreen Network as well. You can go check their show out at evergreenpodcast.com. And you can catch all of our previous 80 plus episodes on Evergreen as well. We should probably be appearing on Whiskey Business, I don't know, sometime in the next few months. So, We'll keep you up to date on that. Today we're going to be talking about a subject that has always intrigued me. We'll break down the U.S. government's decision and the consequences of that fateful decision to incarcerate 120,000 Japanese Americans for the entirety of the Second World War. Following the surprise, very deadly attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, the vast majority of those incarcerated were American citizens. Not convicted, not even alleged to have done anything wrong or trying to lend any support to the evil Japanese Empire locked up in hastily built concentration camps in the desert of the American West. Since the Civil War, there's really no other comparable event in U.S. history, but it follows a pattern of discrimination against Asian Americans throughout our history. From the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882 to Executive Order 9066 by President Roosevelt that we'll discuss today, even through to the spike in anti-Asian sentiment and violence we've seen in the country during the COVID pandemic, Asian Americans are known as the model minority a condescending term that's often used, but this is probably the low point in U.S.-Asian-American relations this period will discuss today, from 1942 to 1945. Basically, every Japanese-American in California, Washington, Oregon, and Arizona is rounded up and bused to quote-unquote relocation centers. Again, mostly American citizens. We'll share a story with you tonight about an Ohio couple that was incarcerated as well. But we've got some great guests per usual, and we'll discuss how this happened, why this happened, and could it happen again? It's Episode 7, Ohio vs. Incarceration. Our first guest is Shirley Ann Higuchi, author and chair of the Heart Mountain Wyoming Foundation. Heart Mountain is one of the ten camps where the Nikkei, or Japanese Americans as they're called, were incarcerated. And Shirley's parents met at the Heart Mountain Relocation Center in Wyoming during the war. But Shirley grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Her friends weren't even Japanese or Asian, uh, and she grew up in the Midwest. Her family very rarely talked about these years in the camps. Her book that we'll talk about today, Setsuko Secret, came out last fall. And there's a link in the show notes to buy it, and it's a tremendous read. Setsuko was her mother's name. And our guest, Shirley, she didn't even know that her mother, Setsuko, was working on preservation efforts at Heart Mountain. The shame and the rejection of the incarceration caused this entire generation of Japanese Americans that they barely discussed it. Shirley dedicated her life to maintaining that history after this discovery on her mother, Setsuko's deathbed. My mother didn't really talk much about the incarceration. And when she did, she sugarcoated that experience. You know, it was a fun place to be. That's where I met dad, et cetera, et cetera. And we really didn't know much about Heart Mountain. But on her deathbed, when she was dying of pancreatic cancer in 2005, and we asked where she wanted her memorial money, her koden in Japan, that's what they call it, koden. What would you like to give that in honor of? And she didn't even miss a beat on her deathbed. She said, Heart Mountain. And to be quite frank, we were totally stunned 
by that. We thought she would say University of Michigan, where my dad taught for many years, maybe Johns Hopkins University, where she was being treated for pancreatic cancer. But it was a real stunner. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you think you understood everything about your parents and your family, and then you find something out. And it really takes a very difficult process to kind of understand why that happened to give it true meaning. But what I realized later after researching this book, this really just wasn't my mom's secret. This was a secret of a lot of Japanese Americans who were of her generation. I met many Sansei third generation daughters and sons who said their parents never talked about this experience. So I think her secret is symbolic of a bigger secret that our society has about the incarceration experience. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Everything changed in the United States on December 7th, 1941 the surprise and very effective attack at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, and at multiple other points under American and Allied control in the Pacific, it launched America into World War II. In everything I've studied, there's clearly a stronger, much more fanatical hatred of, by Americans of the Japanese Empire, more so than the Nazis or the Italians. Americans had their safety and security forever changed on that day. And think about 1941 America. We'd never been attacked, if you don't count the British invasion and and the War of 1812. The vast two oceans on our coast provide us with the sense of security that allowed us to be so isolationist, up until that Sunday morning in December. The British had been at war for more than two years. No one could harm us, and, and why would we intervene and spend hundreds of thousands of lives on a war an ocean away? Americans hated the Japanese for bursting that bubble. There's an argument to be made about how fanatical the Japanese army fought, their people's zombie-like devotion to the to the cause and to the emperor that sparked that hatred, and, and there's something there for sure. But couldn't that be said about the Germans or the Italians under Mussolini, for that matter? There's approximately 2,000 Germans and Italians that are incarcerated during the war, and 120,000 Japanese. Our second guest is the journalist and author of his first book, Mastery of Books, a Division of Simon & Schuster. His book's called The Eagles of Heart Mountain. It's the great writer Bradford Pearson joined us to discuss his new book on Japanese-American incarceration, and we asked him why was there so much hatred for the Japanese compared to the other Axis powers? Asian Americans have been in the United States since the 18th century. Japanese Americans or Chinese Americans or Korean Americans or Filipino Americans were still somehow less American than if you were a German American or an Italian American. And especially at the years right before World War II, you know, it was just pure racism. Because of that, there were a lot of times where Chinese Americans would wear signs that say, I'm Chinese American. Please don't attack me. Attack a Japanese American. Yeah, Koreans did the same thing. Exactly. The, the, the whole reason the camps opened was because of this real disinformation campaign that came down from newspapers and radio all up and down the West Coast that sort of had a trickling up effect in terms of like that going to county level, a state level, and then finally working its way up to a federal level. Roosevelt's cabinet got really influenced by this. In the weeks and months after Pearl Harbor, the country was in a state of shock and hysteria, not knowing when the next attack from the Japanese would come, but it surely would. The West Coast was certain to be the next target. More than 2,400 Americans were killed at Pearl Harbor in one morning. The only comparable experience in my life was the months after 9-11. I worked in D.C. that next summer on Capitol Hill, and I'd walk by missile launchers and anti-aircraft guns on my way to work. That stress of knowing that there'd be another attack from Al-Qaeda, and that it could be even deadlier than September 11th. By the way, we're less than two months away from the 20th anniversary of those attacks. That's, That's absolutely crazy to me. But Brad Pearson, his book lays out the most clear indication of how paranoid the country was in early 1942. An event known as the Battle of Los Angeles has always fascinated me. And he discussed that crazy night in the skies over Hollywood in his book, The Eagles of Heart Mountain. 1,400 shells were launched over Los Angeles County. Five people died. But it wasn't a Japanese attack. It was a weather balloon that showed up on radar and laid bare 
just how bad a case of Warner's our country had. We hear a radio report for the next day, and then Brad talks about the Battle of Los Angeles in February 1942. Anti-aircraft guns went into action against unidentified aircraft in the Los Angeles area shortly after 3 a.m. Pacific wartime this morning. The anti-aircraft guns began barking during a blackout ordered by the 4th Interceptor Command at 2.25 a.m. Watchers on the rooftop of the Columbia Broadcasting Building in the heart of Hollywood could plainly see the flashes of guns and searchlights sweeping the skies in a wide arc along the coastal area. Concussion of the shells could be felt in downtown Los Angeles, 15 miles away. Yeah, it's, it's pure hysteria. I'm glad you brought that up because it's it was one of those things when I was writing the book that was just like, I knew so little about. And that was when I was writing the book, I found so many things that I was like, oh, I want to go read a whole book about this paragraph that I just wrote, you know? Uh, but the Battle of Los Angeles was basically this, in the end, sort of non-event that happened where the city of Los Angeles was worked up into a froth when, uh, in the end, it turned out to be a stray weather balloon uh, crossed onto a military radar, and the military automatically assumed we're under attack from Japan again. You know, it was two and a half months after Pearl Harbor. Everyone was still at a real height, especially on the West Coast. And then what turns out, again, to be just a stray weather balloon threw the whole city into a panic. The city went into blackout um, to try to protect itself from supposedly these this incoming attack. There were reports of planes over the city um, that, you know, days, months, or years later, we've come to find out there were none. Um, any deaths that occurred were because of the blackout. So cars were crashing. People were having heart attacks, thinking they were about to get bombed by the Japanese, when in fact, there was again, literally no, <laughs> nothing was happening. You know, just sort of like you said, just speaks to the real fervor and panic that Pearl Harbor set into people's minds if you lived uh, on the West Coast. thing I never thought about when I considered Japanese-American incarceration was what happened to their houses, their businesses. Our guest Shirley Ann Higuchi talks about the life for her parents' families and the build-up to the war and when the order comes down for relocation. Her families, the Saitos and the Higuchis, they're both in the Bay Area. And they depict that forced exodus perfectly, the problems that they faced. The Higuchis had more than a dozen acres in what is now Silicon Valley. It's crazy to think how much that land would be worth now. They're forced to sell it at bargain basement prices. We talked to Shirley about the Saitos and the Higuchis in Northern California in early 1942. Well, I think in a lot of ways, because my mother's family was San Francisco and it was really more of a city environment. And my father grew up in a rural farm at that time in San Jose and lived isolated on a 14.25 acre farm in San Jose. I think that, that that balance of their both of their experiences does create an interesting arc of experience for my family. My mother's side was Christian. My grandfather was a merchant on my mother's side, grandfather Saito. He was very assimilated in many ways because he was a merchant. I mean, he imported goods from Japan, ceramics, artwork, but he had to really relate well to the community. And I think part of his effort to join the Episcopalian Church in San Francisco was his effort to modernize. And so um, he essentially lost his business. He lost the store that he was operating. He lost a lot of the goods they were carrying. I know it was very stressful for him because um, as my book reflects, they were thinking about going back to Japan. And, and I, I heard that there were arguments very late into the evening, uh, right when the executive order 9066, the term, time was up and they had to leave. They were really discussing that up to the last minute. Um, so they went into Heart Mountain, but what was interesting is my grandfather Saito quickly assimilated and ingratiated himself on the camp personnel, and he was actually running uh, the warehouse um, along with the government workers um, to maintain that warehouse. The flip side, um, the Higuchis were Buddhist. Uh, that's my father's side, much more quiet. 
and in many ways much more insulated, which was really, I think, a traumatizing experience for that family. I mean, when I say that family, my family, um, in that they lived on 14.25 acres. The acres were actually in the names of the two eldest son because the father who was uh, an immigrant in Issei could not own land due to those racist land laws that prevented Issei from owning land. So even though my uh, uncles were not old enough to drive or vote, they actually owned the 14.25 acres. And I think the problem in their, situ their situation was that my father, his friends were all Mexican at that time. He spoke Spanish because my grandfather used to let the Mexican laborers and the Mexican immigrants live on his farm for free. So they really didn't have the relationships with the white community where they probably could have left their farm under some caretaking system. They had no one to turn to. So as a result, they lost that land. They had a forced sale and they got rid of it at pennies to a dollar. And that, again, created a lot of arguments uh, between my grandparents and my father's side. And apparently they had never really recovered from that. I mean, they, I think they argued about the farm till the day they died. FDR made a fateful decision on February 19, 1942, when he signed Executive Order 9066. The order authorized the forced removal of Japanese Americans from the West Coast, which was vaguely described as a military area. FDR had intelligence reports that all spoke to the fact that there's no evidence of sabotage or willingness on behalf of the Nikkei to spy for, for the Japanese. He ignored that because in that same report it spoke of needing to secure military bases, and power plants and bridges from attack. He focused on those warnings. This order was deemed by the White House to be a military necessity, and the roundup began. They're using 1940 census records to identify Japanese Americans. They pay them a visit, send them letters, they post the order on light posts and buildings. You can see that order on our cover art for this episode as Japanese Americans are getting off buses in the background, carrying what they could to these relocation sites. 17,000 Japanese-American children under the age of 10 are sent to the camps, yet very few Hawaiian-Americans are removed. That's where the Pearl Harbor attack took place. People of Japanese ancestry represented some 30% of the island's population. We talked to Shirley, who also points out that one reason for this forced removal was jealousy on the west coast of the success of Japanese-Americans. They had had very good success economically in America, and we asked her why weren't Japanese in Hawaii part of those affected by Executive Order 9066. History does repeat itself, and we see today in the media how facts get exaggerated and they're not really accurately conveyed. On the West Coast, where my grandparents lived and worked, um, there was a lot of media, there was a lot of discrimination. The discrimination against Asian Americans existed um, in the 1800s. And essentially, it was a great buildup to allowing an executive order usurp the, the constitutional rights of Japanese Americans on the West Coast. But a lot of it was propaganda. A lot of it was advocacy on the part of uh, food grower associations. And it really came down to money. It really did come down to money in politics. The reason why it didn't happen in Hawaii, even though that's where the bombing of Pearl Harbor was, and the fact that, um, you know, I would guess that it would be much more uh, vulnerable to another attack given, given its location was because again of money and economics. They couldn't afford to incarcerate the Japanese Americans in Hawaii because it would have virtually shut down the island. Yeah. They would have had no resource and economic development there if they did that. The phrase Japanese internment has always been what I heard or used in my life to describe this event. It's only when I began studying did I discover that people who document this event no longer use that word internment? That's a recent thing. And it's not about political correctness. It's about the word being euphemistic and wildly inaccurate. Internment is more like what we're still doing at Guantanamo Bay. Those are non-citizens being confined or imprisoned for military or political reasons. These were largely American citizens, the majority of which had never even been to Japan. Second, third generation Japanese Americans, Nisei and Sansei as they were called in Japanese, we asked Shirley Higuchi, the author of 2020's Setsuko's Secret, why the phrase Japanese internment is inaccurate, and that's why we title this episode Ohio vs. Incarceration. Right. It was, I mean, they didn't have a choice to be there, and they did have machine guns facing in into the camp inmates. The research really revealed the term internment is something that I think that the United States government used all the way up to present day. 
Yeah. You only see the terminology being challenged probably in the last five or so years, five or 10 years. The technical term internment doesn't even apply in this situation. Internment is when you have illegal aliens or enemy aliens that are actually foreign nationals. I mean, and in this case, they incarcerated Japanese Americans. So the euphemism is not only trying to soften the experience, but it's also technically wrong. Um, but um, it's interesting, if you look back at the propaganda in 1942, a lot of the political leaders used concentration camps. I mean, it was yeah. used very frequent. So now to say you can't use concentration camp sort of flies in the face of what our government was actually using at that time. citizens and aliens alike would have to move. This picture tells how the mass migration was accomplished. Neither the Army nor the War Relocation Authority relished the idea of taking men, women, and children from their homes, their shops, and their farms. So the military and civilian agencies alike determined to do the job as a democracy should, with real consideration for the people involved. First attention was given to the problems of sabotage and espionage. That was just a little taste of a propaganda film by the War Relocation Authority from 1942. It shows just how misinformed Americans were about the removal of Japanese Americans. If we played you more, they'd make it sound like they were being sent to a summer camp. We focus a lot in this episode on Heart Mountain because we can't discuss all 10 camps. Heart Mountain held nearly 14,000 inmates during the war, up to 11,000 at one time, second or third largest city in Wyoming during the war but it's very indicative of a lot of the camps. These camps were hastily built. There are no bathrooms in these barracks, not a classy situation. We talk with Shirley about the real living conditions at the Japanese incarceration camps. It was really uh, quickly and shabbily put together. Um, as you probably have read in the book, they were first sent to assembly centers. You know, my family was sent to Santa Anita Racetrack. They right. lived in horse stalls with manure, et cetera. And after a period of time, they were shipped to Heart Mountain. And that, that city that they built, the second largest city in Wyoming, you know, had cracks, the wood had shrunk. It was really, uh, there was no insulation from the wind and the rain. And I don't know if you've ever been to Cody Powell, Wyoming and live, if you, if you lived in LA before that or San Francisco, the weather conditions for Japanese Americans were really, really extreme. I mean, some of them were ill-prepared. They're wearing their, you know, Hawaiian shirts and all those other things. They, they didn't have the proper shoes. But it's very extreme weather. I mean, it's really hot in the summertime, and the heat is unbearable. And then uh, in the winter, it just drops way below, you know, the freezing point. And they only had a potbelly stove to keep them warm. Um, they didn't have water running. They had to go to public latrines and hospital systems that were really, again, quickly and poorly constructed. I think the hardest part for the Japanese Americans that were there was the lack of privacy in the communal living that really fractured the families. As we said earlier, almost all the incarcerates were from the West Coast, the exclusion zone. But in our study, we found a couple from the Buckeye State that was removed and incarcerated. The husband, Kingo Takasugi, was making airplanes for the war effort in Alliance, east of Canton, Ohio, and his new wife, May. They moved to Ohio around the same time as Pearl Harbor for this exciting new job he got. He's an engineer. And we find this story from our friends at the Ohio History Connection. An article written by Karen Robertson, the curator of manuscripts at the Ohio History Connection, it shined a light on this very unknown story of the Takasugis. This is a good time to mention I've been elected to another three-year term on the Board of Trustees with the Ohio History Connection, formerly known as the Ohio Historical Society, and we're super excited about that to be serving through 2024. But Karen joined us to talk about how the Ohio History Connection, which is responsible for maintaining the state's archives, and how it came into possession of a picture of May Takasugi with a parasol. And they have the actual parasol and the picture in their collection. Pictures taken days before they're forced into the camp at Thule Lake in California. We asked Karen who are May and Kingo Takasugi. They're the only Ohioans that I could find in my research to be imprisoned as Japanese Americans as part of FDR's executive order. 
May and Kingo Takasugi were a young couple, both first-generation Japanese-American living in the LA area. May was born in 1915 and Kingo in 1916, both in, in California. They were married on March 5th, 1942, and not long after that, they moved to Alliance, Ohio, um, where Kingo took a job as an aeronautical engineer at Taylor Craft Airplanes. While they were there, they became friends um, with a local man named Charles Buxton, who was an amateur photographer, was actually their neighbor and working at Goodyear. So him and Kingo were kind of in similar fields. And then in 1943, the Takasugis were incarcerated in a concentration camp in California um, at Tule Lake. But before they left, Buxton took a portrait of May with a parasol, which she then left with Buxton and his wife, Elsie, as a token of their friendship. These items actually came to us from um, Buxton's daughter. Um, he, he held on to them after May gave them to him and then passed them down in the family. Um, so she donated these to us in 2013. My next question is, why are the Takasugi singled out? There's virtually no Japanese Americans in Ohio in the early 1940s. We'll discuss that later. But we asked Karen Robertson from the OHC, why are the Takasugis incarcerated? The most recent address for the couple that the government had was still in California. FDR's executive order 9066 basically said that the army could declare military zones where certain people could be excluded. Um, and as we see in a lot of racist war propaganda, white Americans falsely believed that Japanese Americans would be subverting the war effort. So that was who they wanted to exclude from these areas. Um, and larger exclusion zones were declared in the West where there were concerns about being on the coast and larger, larger concentrations of Japanese populations. Um, so essentially in short, the government thought that the Takasugis were still living in an exclusion zone. There are some, you know, some records putting them in Ohio, but not the ones that were being used by, by the government at the time. And man, that just sucks for the Takasugis. The government takes May and Kingo to Tule Lake, California. This will become the most notorious of the camps. After a year or so, the War Relocation Authority starts moving their quote-unquote disloyal to Tule Lake in California. Not everyone that's there is problematic. Uh, the Thule Lake, though, it's probably the last camp you'd want to be at. More people, you know, from the other nine camps are being transported into Thule Lake all the way into 1945. The Takisukis would remain there during the war despite living in Ohio, never having traveled to Japan, being born, raised, educated, married in America. We asked Karen Robertson from the Ohio History Connection about the infamous Thule Lake Relocation Center. By the end of the war, Thule Lake was basically where problem cases ended up. Early on, before the Takasugis got there, there was a lot of mismanagement of essentially the, the loyalty questions that people were answered when they showed up. Um, and so it became an early area of protest and increased surveillance and isolation. Um, and so since there were so many problem cases there, they decided to designate Thule Lake as a designated segregation center by 1943, which was the year that, that May and Kingo would have showed up. But after increased protests at Thule Lake, they ended up under martial law. And so this would have perhaps been one of the toughest of the concentration camps to be in. is given a questionnaire by the War Relocation Authority once they're in camp. Mostly very basic information, but the last two questions cause major issues for Japanese Americans. Question 27 asks, would you be willing to serve in the U.S. Armed Forces wherever ordered, yes or no? How willing would you be to fight for a country that has imprisoned you, your family, and everyone you know indefinitely? You've done nothing wrong, but you don't want to serve and die for this country while it continues to imprison your, your parents your kid brother, your grandparents in these terrible conditions. And question 28 was just as problematic. Do you swear your unqualified allegiance to the United States and forswear any allegiance to the Empire of Japan? To you and I, okay, what's the big deal? But think of a person who's from Japan, who's a citizen of Japan. Maybe they're a dual citizen. If I give up my citizenship to, to Japan, some of these older camp members, by answering yes, am I a person without a country? You know, It doesn't make me an American citizen. I doubt these people will ever make me a citizen. They've imprisoned me here for a year or two years already with no charges, no chance of getting out. 
we talked to Shirley Higuchi about questions 27 and 28 on the WRA questionnaire. Well, in, in essence, those questions were trick questions. Um, they really, it's kind of like, when was the last time you beat your wife or something right. like that? And the uh, Dr. Takashi Hoshizaki, who, by the way, is still alive and, and, and on my board, and I actually interact with him quite frequently. He was asked, number 27, will you renounce loyalty to Japan? And he gave a he gave a very clear answer. He said, yes, I will renounce that citizenship. Although some individuals, especially the first generation folks, didn't feel comfortable saying that because they were really then without a country. They weren't allowed to be American citizens. They're being imprisoned by America and they're asking them to renounce Japan. And it just didn't really make a lot of sense. But Takashi answered, yes, I will do that to the first one. The second one, he said, will you fight for the US? And he gave a qualified no. And I actually read his file. He was really articulate. It's amazing. He said, I will fight when you restore my rights, when you restore my ability to be a U.S. citizen, I'm willing to fight. And you know what, Takashi went on to serve in the Korean War after he was released from federal prison that imprisoned him for answering no to question 28. Many incarcerees found themselves in trouble by how they answered those two questions. Both Shirley's book, Setsuko's Secret, and Brad's book, The Eagles of Heart Mountain, detail the trials and tribulations of those who protested to the draft. At first, the Japanese Americans were barred from serving in the army at all. Then volunteers were taken, and then by 1943, it was all hands on deck. And thousands did serve. The 442nd Regiment, for example, is a segregated all-Japanese American, basically, regiment, became known as the Purple Heart Battalion. The 442nd serving in Italy, in places like Naples, Rome, landing in Marseille for the liberation of France, they're the most decorated unit in U.S. military history. They include Medal of Honor winner Daniel Inouye. Inouye, who would lose his arm to a German grenade launcher, he'd go on to serve as senator from Hawaii for 49 years. He served from JFK to Obama before dying in 2012. Truly amazing American. But many would deny to serve for obvious reasons. It's easy to say now, of course, he would serve, but would you serve a country that imprisoned you and your whole family? It's a fair question. We asked Brad about protesting and the consequences of refusing to serve. Once the U.S. government realizes that they need men to win the war, they start getting a lot less picky about the kinds of people that they want in the army. And unfortunately for Japanese Americans, that meant that they were going to try to get volunteers at first from the camps. In a book full of ridiculous things, this is still one of the moments that makes me knock my head on the table when I think about the U.S. government walking into these camps and saying, okay, who wants to go fight for the country that put you in these camps? And then being surprised when not everybody signs up. Exactly. And then being, you know, walking in and saying like, oh, well, we you know we have 600 men of, of draft eligibility age here in camp. Hopefully we'll get, you know, a couple hundred and they walk out with like three and are stunned that this is how this happened. But in that, in those first months, when they do that in 1942, that's when the seeds of this draft, draft resistance movement begin at Heart Mountains, especially, and it eventually spreads to all the other camps. So then when the U.S. government comes back a year later and says, oh, actually, no, now we're actually just going to draft you into the army. That's when hundreds across camp start showing up at these meetings that are run by a group called the, Play, the Heart Mountain Fair Play Committee. And this was a group of men who, who laid out their demands from the federal government that said, we will gladly go to war to defend the country that we love, the country that we've all been born in. And our Americans, you know, we, we didn't come here from Japan. We are Americans born on American soil. We will gladly fight for our country if you let us go home or if you let our families go home. And the federal government says no. And there are a lot of people who ended up going and getting drafted and going and fighting bravely in World War II. But there are also a bunch of men at Heart Mountain, and I say men, but again, most of them were teenagers who sort of stood up and said, no, this is not right as an American. I'm not being treated as a whole American right now, but you're still asking me to die as an American. And um, I think that part was always really powerful to me. And those folks who, who resisted the draft ended up getting convicted and sent to federal prison and were really ostracized in the Japanese American community for decades. It wasn't until the 80s and 90s that 
their sort of separate bravery in terms of resisting the draft was seen on the same level as the folks who went and fought in the war. And um, I, I think that a lot of that bravery and, and sort of conviction, uh, you know, courage of conviction is evident when you see that some of the guys, when they got out of prison after being sent there for um, resisting the draft, went and fought in Korea. They said, okay, yeah, no. And, and like, of course we did. Like that was our thing all along was like, if you let us out, we're, we're we are loyal Americans. If you give us, you know, if you let us out of these camps, we'll go fight for the country that we love. The and despite the fact that that country that we love has put us in a prison. When you have machine guns pointed in your general direction for three years, some incidents are bound to happen. Unfortunately, many incarcerees would lose their lives at the hands of American guards. We talked to Brad about some of these tragic incidents that occurred, and not just at Heart Mountain. These incidents would not have occurred, obviously, without this incarceration. And a lot of times they were completely avoidable and unnecessary from, uh, obviously from a military perspective. Um, sometimes there were folks who had mental problems, who were wandering off and getting too close to a fence and guards just shot them dead. Or there were other times when guards sort of made up stories that, you know, these incarcerees were charging at them. And it was clear that they you know, autopsies revealed that they were shot in the back or that one guy had a broken leg and could obviously not have been charging at a guard. And I think that there are a lot of times where the military police that guarded the camps, you know, their most of their days were not really dealing with a lot of insurrection or a lot of violence. So I think that there were times when they took small incidents and sort of blew them out of proportion um, in a way that unfortunately still happens today. But like you said, you know, none of these men who killed these other men were ever found guilty, even through court martials. And, you know, one of them was fined a, a dollar for or whatever the cost was for the price of the bullet that discharged to kill the incarceree. Those people would have been alive if they had been at their homes in California or Seattle or Arizona or wherever they were, you know, originally living. You know, that's the thing that always sits with me is that there were so many folks who died a thousand miles away from their house and were buried somewhere in Wyoming or Utah or the Arizona desert that didn't and shouldn't have died in that place. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Brad's book, Eagles of Heart Mountain, was a fantastic read. It's his first book after years of writing in places like the New York Times, Esquire Magazine, Time Magazine. The book tells the story of Japanese-American incarceration from almost every vantage point from the government, from the actual people in the camps. But the main thrust of the book is the Heart Mountain High School football team, the Eagles. A great untold story. They're the pride of the camp. The Japanese Americans tried to make the camp as normal as possible. Their school teachers brought in from the region. There's a newspaper. They tried to make it as much like their old life in America as they could. And the Eagles football team was another way to escape their situation. And they're damn good on the gridiron. We talked to Brad Pearson about how he came up with the idea for the book, and the impact of the Heart Mountain Eagles and how 5,000 or so fans would show up at their games held in the camp. I came across the story of the Eagles of Heart Mountain. I was working on a separate story about Yellowstone. So, wow, seven years ago now. Heart Mountain Camp, the former Heart Mountain Camp, is right outside the eastern entrance of Yellowstone. So when I was working on that story, one day I went to the museum. That's where the camp was. And I walked in. Uh, you know, I studied history in college and high school. And like you said, I grew up in Hyde Park. So I thought I had a sense of what uh, Japanese-American incarceration was. And I thought I had a, a good handle on this history. And I walked out completely floored and embarrassed by how little I, I really knew about it. Um, but there was this one, there were two sentences on one of the displays at the museum about the Heart Mountain Eagles, this football team. You know, I, I won't give away the end of the book, but they talked about the last game this team ever played. And they talked about how dominant this team was. And I just couldn't get that idea out of my head for months and then years. 
that sort of sat in my head. And then there was also this image of a couple of the teenagers that I saw at the museum. And it was just four or five Japanese American kids in uh, Letterman jackets with, you know, sort of pegged Levi's boots, pompadoured hair. And I couldn't get those two ideas out of my head that if I like put my thumb over those kids' faces, they would have looked like any other 16-year-old kid in America. So that's when I started thinking about how to maybe tell the story of Japanese-American incarceration through the story of this football team and, and the teenagers that were on the team. And, uh, and no one had ever written a book about it before. And there were actually not that many, there's not that many books written in a narrative way about Japanese-American incarceration totally, that, aren't, yeah. that aren't memoirs. Um, and me the memoirs are, are great. And obviously they're, they're a super important part of our history and learning about this, but there's very few books that you can follow characters through that are nonfiction and really um, tell this history. So that was interesting to me. Uh, but yeah, then the team itself, I mean, that was, you know, it, the book wouldn't have been interesting if it wasn't for this team, right? So this team gets put together in about two weeks <laughs> and uh, they start playing all these high schools across Wyoming and Montana. These teams have to come into the camp to play them. They weren't allowed to leave to play these games. So you have all these white teenagers from across these states coming into this concentration camp. So those, those kids are experiencing something they've never experienced before too, where maybe they've, most of them have never seen an Asian American or especially a Japanese American in their entire lives. And all of a sudden they're dropped into a camp with 11,000 of Japanese Americans and are having to, you know, play a game around 5,000 fans. Like you said, you know, the, the, the fans would be lined six, eight, 10 people deep around the entire field to watch this football team play. And like we said, just having a competitive team would have been a remarkable story. But the Eagles were much more than competitive. They were the ultimate underdog, and they won. They had cardboard taped to their legs as pads at the beginning. But they were also innovative, like in their offense. We talked to Brad Pearson about just how did the Eagles win so much. You hit the nail on the head in that there were more than 40 players that came to try out, and only three of them had ever played high school football before. So basically, they start recruiting kids from all sorts of different sports. And most of them had, you know, had no idea how to even line up. But they had a great coach who was this guy who had played at L.A. City College. And when he played there back in the 20s, they were starting to sort of experiment a little bit with a, a spread formation. And, you know, what we come to know now is a spread formation. And they tried to sort of put that in here with the Eagles, where they realized, okay, look at, we're a lot smaller than all the teams were playing. There were some games where they were outweighed by 40 or 50 pounds a man. Yeah. So they're like, how can we take that disadvantage and turn it into our advantage? So just because we're smaller, that also means we're probably faster. We can sneak through the line a little bit quicker so we can block a bunch of punts. So that was sort of how they played. They played this really fast and loose style where they used a lot of end arounds and a lot of flea flickers. They would switch out players a lot, serving as quarterback or, or tailback or whatever it was. And I think it just put a lot of the teams back on their heels and they would play super fast. So they had all these farm boys from Wyoming and Montana who weren't used to playing this quick style of football, which meant that they got tired a lot easier too. The Eagles, some of the games, they put up tons of points, but other times there was a lot of games where they would win seven to six or 14 to seven, where it was just like, still sort of that grinding 30s and 40s style of football doubt and were able to use you know one trick play or get one 40 yard you know break down and down the line to really put the game away by june of 1944 the war has completely turned around on june 6 the allies successfully land at normandy the japanese are losing island after hard-fought island in the pacific as the americans continue their push to mainland japan Two days after 156,000 Allied troops land on D-Day, Interior Secretary Harold Ickes, in agreement with the Secretary of War Stimson, Attorney General Biddle, sent a letter to FDR declaring, and I quote, that there is no basis in law or equity for the perpetuation of the ban. The continued exclusion of American citizens of Japanese ancestry from the affected areas is clearly unconstitutional in the present circumstances, end quote. The Department of Interior oversees the camps at this point, but even after the most important members of his cabinet call on FDR to close the camps, send these people home, he still refuses. This struck me. Brad's book does the research on the government and the president's thinking, the what did they know and when did they know it kind of stuff, the why of this decision, and I was discussing this case with a family member, and they said what I always believed years ago, well, we overreacted, but hindsight's twenty twenty. 
This is the hindsight in this moment, the summer of 44, more than two years into this wrong-headed and incredibly un-American policy. I always assumed it was the Army or civilian leadership that wanted this to continue, uh, but in Eagles of Heart Mountain and in Shirley's book, Setsuko's Secret, they clearly lay out that this was FDR's call from the beginning. Eleanor had visited the camps, Eleanor Roosevelt. She loathed this decision. Brad talks about in his book how the Japanese-American incarceration became a problem between Franklin and Eleanor, their relationship. A huge disagreement. Their relationship obviously had many other problems, but this was kind of a breaking point for them during the war. We talked to Brad Pearson, who grew up in Hyde Park, New York, the home of the Roosevelts, as big an FDR fan going into this writing of this book as you'd find, and it kind of broke him as well. The idea of military necessity was sort of never technically accurate. The federal government just completely disregarded all of its military intelligence reports when it initially rationalized Japanese-American incarceration. But then, you know, you're a couple years in, the camps have been open now for more than two years. It's clear that there has been no sabotage or espionage on the part of the Japanese-American community in terms of aiding the Japanese war effort. So all of those things sort of come together in the spring of 44, and the interior secretary, war secretary, and the attorney general are sort of saying, okay, we could probably just close up shop on these camps and let everyone back to their life. But FDR, you know, and again, he just keeps digging this hole on this this black mark and on his record, really just sees a political expediency where he says, okay, well, you know, we have an election coming up in November, how bad would it look if I, you know, sort of flip-flopped and and released all these Japanese Americans to go back to the West Coast? And he's like, basically, I need to finish the war. I need to get all this stuff done. And I I might not be president if I release the Japanese Americans. That was one of the moments as, as I, you know, as a son of Hyde Park, as someone who was raised in Hyde Park and spent, you know, 16 years of my life there ensconced in, in, in Roosevelt lore my entire life. I went to Franklin Delano Roosevelt high school. My middle school was built with new deal funds that Roosevelt personally signed off on the blueprints for everything in the town is Roosevelt run. And, you know, you can't escape being in Hyde Park and and not seeing something Roosevelt related. I had a very specific view of Roosevelt. But then this episode, particularly when he chooses to keep the camps open in hopes of uh, winning re-election, that was when I was truly sort of something broke inside me. uh, On on how I how I considered Roosevelt and and you see, you know, within weeks after the election, he closes the camps. It, it was just pure politics, and it's it's really disheartening. It's misleading to say that all 120,000 Japanese stayed in the camps throughout the entire war. Some did leave. Some served in the army, and, and some were able to get jobs in the east and the midwest and were allowed to leave. Not always with their entire family, but tens of thousands of Japanese Americans permanently relocated to the Midwest. Brad talks to us about the story of Dayton, Ohio, a very important town when it comes to production on the home front, a town where in the 1940 census only two, that's right, one, two Japanese Americans lived. Japanese Hawaiians weren't sent to camp. If you lived in Salt Lake City, you lived in Denver, you weren't sent to camp. If you lived just over the state line between California and Nevada, if you worked on a farm that was on the other side of the state line, you didn't have to go to the camp. And because of that, the WRA tried very early on to convince people that once you got to camp, if you wanted to, if you had a job waiting for you, you can move to Flint, Michigan, you can move to Philadelphia, you can move to Boston, you can move to you know Ohio. You know, like you said, in, in Dayton or in Cleveland, Chicago and Denver, especially. But like you allude to, these little groups do end up popping up in cities, especially across the Midwest. And then in Dayton, I think it's a really cool little story because in Dayton, especially, you know, 150 Japanese Americans end up in Dayton. By the 1940 census, there were only two Japanese Americans that were, that were listed in Dayton's entire, the entire city's census. So first of all, I think that it must've been a a lonely existence for those two Japanese Americans. Uh, But then you get 150 folks that show up and a lot of that's the work of this guy named Robert Kadama, who worked with the churches in Dayton to say, hey, let's bring some folks here 
and they'll, they'll work in different industries and the churches were all for, because a lot of the churches were helping this sort of relocation, especially in, in cities like Philadelphia and Rochester and in Dayton, a lot of them ended up working at the McCall plant. Folks were, you know, running paper and doing all sorts of different things in that, which was the world's, I think at the time, the world's largest printing plant. It's just a really fascinating story because in the forties, they also had to work a lot with the labor unions there to convince them that bringing in these Japanese Americans, they had to get accepted into the different labor unions that were just at the McCall plant. You know, this guy, Robert Kadama came in and sort of had to work with all these different unions to, to say like, no, these guys are legit. Like, and, and they, you know, they proved themselves because of course they did. They were just Americans. The war ends in September of 1945. We all know how it ends. The United States dropped two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You can go back and listen to our episode from season two, our season two premiere, Ohio vs. the Bomb. The man who, drew, who piloted the Enola Gay, Paul Tibbetts, Columbus native, lived here after the war as well. And we talk about that decision to drop the bomb and why it was really a no-brainer at the time. The camps would be closed down during 1945, and by the fall, they would be empty. Japanese Americans, like uh, the families of our guest Shirley Gucci, her families, the Saitos and the Higuchis, they'd find new homes. Shirley was raised in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where her father was a professor. Japanese Americans are some of the most successful minority groups in the United States, in spite of being stripped of all their land, their jobs, their businesses during World War II. Something interesting happens in 1988, something that many said couldn't be done. The United States, under a Congressional Act, offered reparations to the remaining 60,000 Japanese Americans that were incarcerated, those still living. $20,000 to be given to each one. We'll hear from Shirley Higuchi about reparations to the Japanese. We'll also hear from President Reagan as he signs the act into law and formally apologizes 46 years after Executive Order 9066. My fellow Americans, we gather here today to right a grave wrong. More than 40 years ago, shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, 120,000 persons of Japanese ancestry living in the United States were forcibly removed from their homes and placed in makeshift internment camps. This action was taken without trial, without jury. It was based solely on race, for these 120,000 were Americans of Japanese descent. The internment of Japanese Americans was just that, a mistake. The legislation that I am about to sign provides for a restitution payment to each of the 60,000 survivors, yet no payment can make up for those lost years. So what is most important in this bill has less to do with property than with honor, for here we admit a wrong. At that time, the, gov the government uh, actually worked well together, um, unlike today, and it really was um, a law that um, Secretary Mineta, who was then a congressman, and other leaders were able to get Republican buy-in. But it was a process that took over three years, and I'm sure it wasn't really easy to do. When I interviewed um, Senator Inouye's uh, staff person who worked on this bill, is in addition to talking to now Secretary Norman Mineta, um, it really took a lot of back and forth, and they believed, and Senator Inouye believed this, that a commissioning a study was the first step, not going directly into reparation, not going indirectly, and can you make us whole and apologize, but let's study the effects of the incarceration, what really happened. And I think that report was so powerfully uh, um, investigated and written that it really served as a, a really strong foundation for both the Democrats and the Republicans to act on that bill. In terms of the reaction, I think you had brought this up, you know, $20,000 when you put it into the economic loss of losing 14.25 acres, which is now worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. It really is more the symbolism of the apology and the token reparation that allowed many Japanese Americans to feel they had permission now to speak about what had happened to them, that they were sort of vindicated. Apologies carry a lot of weight in this culture that when you really truly say you're sorry, in Japanese culture, you really do mean it. I think the biggest uh, effect it had was that it really shed light on a terrible time and it gave Nisei, my parents' generation, more permission to talk about what they'd experienced. However, I know some uh, Japanese uh, individuals, Americans had refused it 
um, out of protest. And I know many had actually donated the money, like Secretary Mineta donated his entire reparation to uh, Japanese American causes. Over the past 12 months, nearly 4,000 anti-Asian incidents reported from all 50 states. Women reported twice as many incidents as men. While Asian Americans did not bring coronavirus to the U.S., they have been targeted. There's an increase in instances of harassment and violence against Asians in America during the last 16 months, which has an obvious connection to the coronavirus coming out of Wuhan, China. Some of the videos you see online are, are just horrific. But this podcast is relevant today on a number of different levels. We talked to Shirley Iguchi about the relevancy of her book and her work at Heart Mountain in today's combative atmosphere. Well, I do believe the story of the Japanese American incarceration is more relevant now than ever. You know, mostly for me, it's because my parents were children when they were incarcerated. They were American citizens boarding the United States and spent three years of their childhood behind barbed wire. And today we hear not only of overt discrimination against Asian Americans today because of the messaging around, I think, the COVID virus, and also with the uh, issues that are going on in the border, the incarceration of families and children. I think a lot of that harkens back to what happened in 1942. And Shirley is the chair of the Heart Mountain Museum Board in Wyoming. And if you're ever in big sky country, it's a must visit. You can visit them online at heartmountain.org. We talked to her about why preserving Heart Mountain is important and how their mission was aided by a rare show of bipartisanship. Well, the uh, Heart Mountain Museum is located really between two towns, Cody and Powell, Wyoming, right in the middle. I'll tell you, if we could open up a museum at the site where Japanese Americans were incarcerated unfairly and unjustly during World War II in a red state in Wyoming and getting that again, once again, that bipartisan support, we have the support of the Republicans. They want our museum being there. As a matter of fact, Liz Cheney just recently supported um, a federal uh, funding bill that would help Heart Mountain out. So, you know, just getting that kind of support, both from Republicans and Democrats, really, I think, can serve as a model in terms of the way this country should operate and act. I think as a Japanese American, I have a strong moral and ethical responsibility to tell the story because I think this story of incarceration is probably the best example of what not to do during wartime hysteria and emergency. And if we've got both Republicans and Democrats agreeing just to that, just imagine how we could use that experience as an example for the rest of the country. The most important episodes to me that we do are the ones that show you the history that you don't know and then connect you with today and why it's important to remember. The classic Churchill line, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. That's when the show's really at its best. The most recent example of Japanese American incarceration in the news was during 2015-2016. Candidate Trump and then President-elect Trump and his surrogates are floating Executive Order 9066 as justification for a possible travel ban, Muslim ban, or a Muslim registry that was being floated around, that was being considered briefly by the administration. Perfectly, perfectly honest, it is legal. They say it'll hold constitutional muster. I know the ACLU is going to challenge it, but I think it'll pass. And we did it during World War II with Japanese, which you know, call it what you Come will, on. maybe, maybe you're wrong. Not, you're not proposing we go back to the days of internment camps, I hope. No, 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 I'm not proposing that at all, Megan. But what I am saying is that we need to protect that. America I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff that gets people scared, Carl. Right. But it's, I'm just saying there is precedent for it. And I'm not saying I agree with it. But in this case, I absolutely believe that a regional base... You can't be citing Japanese internment camps as precedent for anything the president-elect is going to do. Look, the president needs to protect America first. No, because what I'm doing is no different than what FDR, FDR's solution for Germans, Italians, Japanese, you know, many years ago. So you're ago, for internment camps? This is a president who was highly respected by all. He did the same thing. If you look at what he was doing, it was far worse. Now that's some high level whataboutism right there, bringing up FDR. But the case law being relied on in the case of Trump v. Hawaii decided in 2018 that the president had not exceeded his power 
uh, by ordering the travel ban in his first weeks in office. In a 5-4 to four decision along ideological lines, they supported the president. But both the majority and the dissent opinions went out of their way to point out that Korematsu versus the United States was a terrible decision and cannot be relied on in any way. It's not clear, though, whether it's officially overturned Korematsu. Korematsu is this landmark case of Fred Korematsu and the ACLU that sued the U.S. government based on the exclusion of Japanese citizens from the West Coast. The court, in one of its worst decisions, it worked its way all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, upheld Executive Order 9066 saying military necessity, not race, dictated FDR's decision, and thus it was constitutional. Korematsu's conviction for refusing to leave the West Coast was vacated in 1983 after the Justice Department determined that the government withheld evidence from the Office of Naval Intelligence. That evidence, those reports, said that no Japanese Americans could be found to have been working as spies in the United States. That there was basically no threat from Japanese Americans on the West Coast. But if Korematsu is still law, then what's stopping our government from doing something like this again to an unpopular race or nationality? We close today with Shirley Ann Higuchi talking about the Korematsu case and the threat of something like Japanese-American incarceration happening again. Korematsu is still on the books, and it wasn't overturned at all. It's still there. And yes, Justice Scalia said it was one of the worst decisions possible. But essentially how that relates to the Trump uh, lawsuit that had happened uh, later on is that um, it really, back then, they were saying that the government, the military, in their discretion under military necessity, could usurp the constitutional rights of individuals like Korematsu. And essentially what the Supreme Court said today was that the president, through executive order, can usurp the rights of individuals you know, based on emergency necessity. So it is a major loophole that exists. Now, Korematsu's actual conviction conviction was eventually overturned, but not the concept of executive order abuse. So it is very troubling. But the thing is, it's like, you would think that our president should have the ability to issue executive orders in true wartime emergencies. But I think the issues come down to the facts. There were no facts to support that executive order. And that's how it can be abused and it can happen again. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon so many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendations, so we've got two this week. Setsuko's Secret by Shirley Hanaguchi and The Eagles of Heart Mountain by Bradford Pearson, both our guests today. Shirley was a fascinating interview. She talked with survivors and their families told a touching personal story about also the broader story of Japanese incarceration during the war. There's a link in the show notes to that book from 2020 as well. Shirley's a lawyer. She's the former president of the Washington, D.C. Bar Association. And again, really want to thank her for joining the show. Brad's book, which was released this year, is the one I found on the shelves at my local Barnes & Noble. I'm sure you could as well. I've been interested in this episode of American History since we started the show. Only when I found Karen's blog post about the Takasukis being incarcerated out of Ohio, then when I bought and read Brad's book and Shirley's book, did I finally know we had to do this episode. We talked to Brad about writing his book and how using football allowed him to get this subject into the hands of readers that normally wouldn't volunteer to read a book about such a dark period in U.S. history. When, when I learned about the story of the Eagles of Heart Mountain, I thought that I knew a lot more about this history of Japanese-American incarceration than I really did. And that meant... From my perspective, I was someone who has studied history and uh, was reasonably educated on this topic, knew so little. I knew that the general American public knew even less than I did. So I wanted to try to find a way to tell that story of Japanese American incarceration with a hook that I knew more people would read the book through. I, I sort of reverse engineered that, but like 
the football team is that vehicle. These teenagers that went through this are that vehicle. And I kind of thought a bit as I was writing it, I, I really sort of viewed the whole book as, and especially the cover as like this Trojan horse, where if I can convince an average reader to pick up a book about football and World War II, I can actually make it a book about racism and xenophobia and this really dark part of American history that I think everyone needs to know and needs to understand not only in the context of history, but in the context of our present and, and what that means today. Because looking at the book, and even when I was writing the book, so many things happened in American history in the years since that I got my book contract to write this. As I was writing it, people would always come up to me and say, your book is, uh, it's so relevant right now. And I would say, yeah, I was like, I, I appreciate you saying that. But like over the course of years, what they would compare it to would change, right? So that first they would compare it to uh, the Muslim ban that the Trump administration put into place. Then they would compare it to family separation or, you know, kids in cages. And then, you know, the book came out the day before the insurrection on the Capitol. So like that sort of disinformation that led to that is the same sort of disinformation that led to Japanese American incarceration. So there's all these different lessons that you can sort of you can look at it through that lens of history. And that was how I kind of wanted to write it in a way that allowed people to view the, this past and still apply it to the present. As we said, Brad's book, The Eagles of Heart Mountain, which I also recently reread or listened to, I should say, on Audible, it came out on January 5th, 2021, the day before the Capitol riot. We talked with people over the course of this season and last season about what's it like to write and release your book during the pandemic. But Brad brings the added experience of launching his book 24 hours before the Capitol building was stormed. He tells us about his first book event, which took place with the Wall Street Journal that night as the Capitol was still being cleared. January 5th, the day before the insurrection on the Capitol. <laughs> perfect, ti perfect timing for, uh, for publishing a book or just trying to do anything. Basically. Right. Oh, gosh, you got 24 hours of... The, the first book event was like that night, the night of the insurrection. And I did it with Jason Gay from the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. And he was like, well, thanks, everybody, for coming. There were like still people like in the Capitol building <laughs> as we started. And I was like, oh, boy. It was so weird to be like on Twitter, be like, hey, you know, uh, in like 20 minutes, I'm doing this book event. <laughs> with, with WSJ, it's kind of important. Yeah, if you want to like... Uh, you know, just get like a little break from the fact that like our seat of government is being overrun currently. Uh, please, we can uh, talk about sucks, uh, football man. and war. Yeah. Thanks a lot, treasonous. That'll do it for episode seven, Ohio versus incarceration. Thanks again to all our guests, Karen, Brad, Shirley, just fantastic stuff. Thank you guys for your patience, giving us that extra week, uh, this mid-season break we took. So we had some fun summer things to do, but we're back on a regular schedule moving forward. Thanks again to our friends at Evergreen Podcast for all their help this year. Go to evergreenpodcast.com. Check out all their great history shows and our friends at Whiskey Business. They just joined the network as well. Our next episode is one of the craziest stories of how a Joe Sixpack from Toledo, Ohio, became a hero of the Cuban Revolution, one of Castro's most highly decorated commanders during the war, the revolution that brought Fidel to power. Cuba is in the news today as those people are fighting for their freedoms and we're pulling for them. How interesting of a story is it? It's now being made into a movie by George Clooney, Adam Driver playing the leading role of Ohioan William Morgan. We'll bring you that story in two weeks. Enjoy your summer, and thanks again so much for listening to Ohio vs. the World. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.